Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Andrew Cuomo, in his budget address this week, said New York State's fiscal future is dependent on how much aid it receives from Washington under the new administration of President Joe Biden and the Democratic-led Congress. Cuomo, also a Democrat, is seeking $15 billion to plug two years of state budget gaps, and he's threatening to sue if he doesn't get it. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Cuomo presented two starkly different scenarios, depending on how much aid New York ultimately gets from an anticipated new federal relief package that would provide a total of $350 billion to state and local governments hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. One, if the state gets $6 billion in aid. Cuomo says that would result in a $9 billion gap. He proposes filling it with new, higher income tax brackets for the state's wealthiest residents, delaying the next phase of a middle-class tax cut and a 5% across-the-board cut to all state funding for state agencies, as well as schools, health care providers, and local governments. Worst-case scenario, I would consider that the 2021 version of the federal government saying drop dead to New York. The governor says if the state receives the full $15 billion in federal aid he's seeking, then none of those things would happen. And the state would add programs, including a $130 million stimulus package for restaurants and small businesses devastated by the pandemic-related economic shutdowns. It could also begin a $300 billion infrastructure program paid for through state borrowing and federal and private funds. Cuomo says if Biden and the Democratic-led Congress don't come through with the full amount he's seeking, he will commence litigation. The lawsuit would focus on the governor's grievances from what would then be the previous administration of President Donald Trump and Republicans who led the Senate during most of the pandemic so far. The COVID assault in New York was caused by federal negligence, right? And second, New York was used as a political piñata for this federal government. In a briefing with reporters, Cuomo's budget director Robert Mujica says while the state's finances are grim, there have been some signs of improvement in recent months. He says revenues from tax collections are higher than initially expected, and his office took many steps to hold down spending, including freezing hiring and planned wage increases, imposing a moratorium on all new state contracts, and temporarily withholding 20 percent in aid payments from schools and local governments. He says 15 percent of that money withheld can now be restored. But Mojica says nearly half of the two million jobs lost in March and April in 2020 have not come back, and employment in New York may not fully recover until late in 2023 or even 2024. So the current situation is one of uncertainty. 
Mujica did not provide a specific action plan if the federal aid package falls somewhere between $6 billion and $15 billion, saying his office would discuss options with the legislature. Democrats who lead the state Senate in a statement say they favor raising taxes on the wealthy if those choices have to be made. Democrats in the Assembly have previously said they also favor the tax hikes. Republicans who are in the minority in the legislature criticized the governor for blaming Washington for the state's fiscal problems and for not giving enough credit for previous federal relief packages. Senator Tom O'Mara is the ranking Republican on the Senate Finance Committee. We have to be able and ready in New York to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and not just continue to wait on handouts from the federal government to appease our overspending ways in New York State. He says New York already had a $6 billion structural deficit before the coronavirus hit. Regardless of the amount of federal aid that New York ultimately gets, Cuomo is proposing two new programs that would raise an estimated $800 million in state revenues, legalizing the sale of marijuana to adults for recreational purposes and expanding mobile sports betting. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk. This week, in addition to the governor delivering his budget address, he spoke to you personally about the budget, Alan, and what's going to happen. Now, we know a couple of things. We know that some of the earlier estimates of $15 billion turn out to be a little bit less, more like $8 billion, maybe even $4 billion. However, billions are billions are billions, and it's a lot of money. And he's relying on Joe Biden administration now that the president has been inaugurated, and it looks like with a majority in the Senate and the leader, Chuck Schumer from New York, we might be able to get the money we need, but he's threatening to sue if he doesn't. Yeah, there will be people who think that threatening to sue the federal government when your friend has just been inaugurated as <laughs> a president of the United States may be a little bit of harsh rhetoric. But I think what he's trying to do here is to show that we mean business. We've got to have that money. We're depending on it, and we need to get it. And it may have been more of a clarion call to the United States Congress, David, than it was to the president. Because after all, the Congress, as he said, is going to take this amount of money that the president is proposing and they're going to start to cut it up in terms of their own political needs in their various states. So what he may have been doing was saying, don't try it. You know, New York should be number one. We led in fighting the pandemic. We have the major city in this country and we need this money and you better give it to us. Or as my Ph.D. advisor Dr. Padilla once said, you better, Shatak, you just better. Well, and let's follow that. You just better. Should the now former president, Donald Trump, be prosecuted, you asked, and that would be in New York because you have the district attorney, Cy Vance, in New York City and the state attorney general, Letitia James, with cases, whether he should be prosecuted and go to jail. You asked the governor that? I did, and I think it's a very important question, and the governor answered, and he said, if there is evidence... And it turns out that he did it, he should go to jail. 
Well, that's a declarative sentence that really means a great deal uh, to me, and I certainly agree with it. There are those people who say, oh, you know, let Trump go, it's the end. No, because the message has to be that no one is above the law, and that includes a president of the United States who may use and abuse his powers in the wrong way. And if you commit a crime, and if you get to be president of the United States, and we have this ridiculous idea that presidents can't be held accountable while they're in office, okay, he's not in office, now's the time. It is not the time to just say, well, let him go, it doesn't matter. Because what will people learn from that? They'll learn that if you're powerful enough, you get to break the laws and to flout them. Well, the vaccine distribution is not going well in New York. It's been frustrating for many and in other places. And I know you've been talking to people who have been struggling, been on the phone hours and hours trying to schedule appointments. And you questioned the governor about that. He laid a lot of the blame at the federal government's feet. Well, of course he did. And to some degree, there's no question that it was warranted. What we need is a national policy. Look, here I am, 79 years old, and I have diabetes. I'm told by the Massachusetts government, where I live, right over the border from New York, that I'm first in line. Yeah, well, then go figure out how you <laughs> how you get the... <laughs> How you get a shot? You know, we all believe that the first responders are those who deserve it the most. But then, you know, when you lay out priorities and you say, okay, we've got millions of people and a couple of hundred thousand shots, somebody's got to decide and do it well. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the invocation of the National Defense Act by Joe Biden is the right thing to do. Hey, in World War II, David, we had people putting out tanks and guns and airplanes overnight. We closed down the factories and then we stopped making cars. And on came the necessity of doing it and doing it fast and doing it right, and we did it then. If we did it then, we can do it now. Americans deserve to be protected and they need to be protected. You know, one of the things that Cuomo said, which was so frightening, was that when this is all over, this virus is going to morph again. And we'll probably need another vaccine. Look, it can't be easy to be governor of a, of a major state like this with all of this disease at a time like this. And, of course, he wrote a book about the mm. strategy that he used in battling the initial coronavirus when it hit New York and flattening the curve. And you asked him about that book as he's received some criticism as to whether it was premature. Well, that's right. It looked like, you know, he had gotten it down to 1%. That was terrific. Now we're you know, hovering some days, some days around eight, some days around six, uh, wherever it is. And so he's gotten some criticism by saying, hey, that was a victory lap a little bit too early. So I asked him, I said, was it premature? And he said, absolutely not. This is the way we have to do it. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, and in the need for money for the state coffers, he's got legalized sports betting and marijuana on the table now. Those for a while just wouldn't get the traction in New York, but it looks like this could be the year by necessity. Hey, David, it's about time. Now, I'll be honest with you. I have never quite been in sync with this governor on the question of marijuana reform. I think it's so important. And I think that this is such a powerful governor, and he has so much at his disposal in terms of his powers that he could have had it. 
But if you remember some of our conversations very early, he raised some doubts about marijuana and whether it should be uh, legalized. And he has morphed. There's no question over the last several years we've been talking, uh, he's been talking about why we need it. Good. I mean, you know, you don't have to stay with a position if it's not what is needed at a particular time. So he wants it, and he wants sports betting, and the question is who gets the money in both cases? This has been one of the big holdups on marijuana, but, you know, these people could snap their fingers and say, okay, here's how we're going to work it out, and it can be done in 10 minutes, and that's what's going to happen here. A certain amount of money is going to go into a social equity fund. The rest of it is going to go into the state budget. That could have been done day one, and New York has been slow to get to the table. You know, David, I live right across the line here in Great Barrier, Massachusetts, and i got to tell you, it's open for business. And I'm sure that our selectmen in our town are not going to be very happy when New York gets its marijuana reform because so much money has been raised for state and local taxes because Massachusetts had it and New York did Well, finally, the big question, I guess, during this legislative session, will lawmakers approve a tax increase? Well, David, I think a great deal depends on how much comes from Joe Biden and Washington, whether the Congress will make New York whole or whether they won't. If it looks like New York is going to be saved because we have a Democratic president who is committed to helping the states and localities, which I do believe he is, uh, then I don't think that you will need that rise in taxes. But if it looks like New York is going to get screwed on this whole thing, you better believe that somehow somebody is going to have to pay some more money. And my feeling is it's probably those at the very top of the economic ladder. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. With the experience of the fall semester under their belts, college presidents have been rolling out their plans for the spring. At Faster College in Poughkeepsie, President Dr. Elizabeth Bradley says the fall semester went well, with relatively few COVID-19 cases. She spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn, whose bureau is based at Vassar, about their plans for the spring. Bradley, a global health expert, also discussed how the country is responding to the pandemic. Bradley says the so-called island model worked in the fall, with some 45 students who tested positive all asymptomatic and no spread on campus. Many of the protocols will be repeated during the spring semester when, at this point, classes begin February 17th. The parts that are different is first, in Dutchess County, the prevalence of COVID, as you know, is so much higher than it was. When we started contemplating coming back in the fall, we were getting six, eight cases a day. And now um, I think we have 2,300 cases, uh, active cases uh, right now in the county. So it's very different. The implication of that for us is we will absolutely keep the perimeter of our campus. You know, we really will not have 
visitors from outside, and we will not let students leave the campus once they've moved in. So that's even more important, I think, given our surroundings. And the other difference is the students have been through it once, so they're a little bit more like they understand what it means to go into quarantine, self-quarantine, and I think they're going to be even more attentive, understanding this is serious, and uh, you really have to abide by the expectations, and I feel pretty confident they'll do that. Now, what about, I'm obviously familiar with the Vassar campus, and students like to go off because right there, there are eateries and some places that they frequent, and that mm-hmm. b- those businesses rely heavily on Vassar students and faculty, um, you know, for, for mm-hmm. their livelihood. What is working or not working in terms of that? I mean, are they able to deliver? How are you keeping them in business and they keeping your, your students fed outside of the grab-and-go dining offer? Yeah, it's a great question and really important to us um, how we have stayed in relationship with the Arlington businesses and the town around us. So uh, one of the things we do is we bring vendors on campus to actually sell to our students. And, um, you know, Munchie Monday, Tasty Tuesday, and there's several other uh, opportunities where we have really set them up all by the protocols. We have lots of protocols for them. Um, and they and our students just... Um, glom onto uh, businesses that come onto campus to sell because, of course, they aren't able to just walk down themselves. So um, we have had pretty much most of the businesses that have wanted to have been able to come and uh, some every week to actually sell. In addition, um, we have done all kinds of things where we're ordering food and they just deliver. That's a little bit different because it's just a delivery, uh, but that also has been very robust. And our students, even if they're in self-quarantine, they can put in an order and get the food delivered, you know, to outside where they are in self-quarantine. So, so far, so good. I think we really have been able to uh, keep the businesses at least, uh, you know, having some business from Vassar, and certainly our students have appreciated their support. And as you know, uh, President Bradley, the vaccination situation, distribution, uh, you know, there's there's a vaccine shortage uh, among the counties. How has this changed any uh, anything for your plans? And are your educators, administrators, et cetera, on, on campus getting vaccinated? We have, in fact, applied to be a uh, distribution site for the vaccine. I don't know if Vassar will be selected to do that, but we'd be eager to support our community in that way. And we are encouraging faculty who are in 1B, they're able to get, they're eligible now, um, to go out to the websites and try to find an appointment. And several have. Uh, These appointments now are really end of March, beginning of April, but several have found appointments. Any plans yet? Is it too early to decide what's happening for graduation? Uh, Yeah, we have a group that's working on that intensively that actually involves students administrators and faculty to get a sense of what are the most important parts. Just like everybody, we really would love to be able to do some small pieces of it in person, but we just don't know yet if that's safe enough um, and, and you know, which pieces. So we'll be working on that actively and eager to talk about it in um, a few more weeks. I'm just wondering if as a step back and look at what's occurred and what's transpiring now with the pandemic, you know, just what are your takes on this? What are we learning? What are lessons learned? What is, you know, what are you concerned, more concerned about? What are you happy with, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think one of the most important things we're learning is how to live in a community with interdependence and realizing that our actions really do affect other people's actions. And 
that's a really important life lesson for young adults, but honestly, it's a really important life lesson for all of us. That and, and at Vassar, as you know, we're trying to really foreground, we precedes me. So think of the other person when you act. We are a, a group together. We're not just individuals. And I'm so hopeful, and our students have done beautifully with that, as have our, our employees and faculty. And I'm so hopeful that that is a cultural norm that will stick after the pandemic because, you know, there's a lot of times we should be using those values in so much of what we uh, do together as a campus and as a society. So that's something I um, feel really good about. I think the other thing that we've learned is people are just much more interested and literate in science. You know, you want to understand the science now. So I think there's a much better um, sense of Actually, everybody should take a little bit of science. Everybody should take a little public health. Everybody should have some sense of what these kinds of infectious disease mean, because this certainly is not the last one of these that we're going to have to endure. Uh, so I think that's another, uh, it's a good outcome. It's an adapted um, outcome, a way in which we're adapting. I do think over time, um, I would really strive for having a stronger connection with our public health officials and a more systematic way to respond to public health crises, which, you know, recently read about the state trying to train new public health professionals quickly. I'm very excited about that because I think we've all been able to see that our medical and public health um, infrastructure, as good as it is, always could be shored up to help our society, I don't know, weather these kinds of storms better. Anything else, President Bradley? Um, yeah, just a couple of things. Something that I have felt very proud of and hope we will continue is that we have not really had any changes in our um, workforce. You know, we haven't had to lay people off. We have um, tried to stay as just an anchor institution that's solid. If you get a job here, you're going to have a job here. And I think that kind of ties in with our goals of We Precedes Me, and it really helps with morale. I mean, once we made that decision and we publicized, look, we are going to get through this the best we can. We're going to do everything we can to keep every job alive here. People were ready to work. You know, they were committed. Okay, we're all here together. Let's stay together. And um, that, I think, really has helped our morale, which it helps the morale of the employees, which then um, sort of trickles down to the students as well. So I felt that that has really been just a nice thing to see, and I feel as if in this spring, even as the plans continue to be difficult, I think people will embrace them, feeling that we're committed as a, uh, I don't know, as an institution that will stay together. Dr. Elizabeth Bradley is president of Vassar College. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The commemoration in Plattsburgh honoring Dr. Martin Luther King is normally held at the SUNY Plattsburgh Newman Center. But this year, due to COVID-19, organizers had to find a different way to hold the event, turning to the local public television station to create an hour-long virtual program. 
The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. commemoration organizers couldn't find an available site where the Plattsburgh community could gather that was adequately safe under COVID-19 guidelines. Committee member Maxine Perry says they decided to do a virtual celebration of King's legacy. We feel it's important to the community to witness some of the uh, things that are going on today that sort of relate to what's gone on in the past. And we hope that it will uh, enlighten the community. The virtual celebration was recorded earlier this month by Mountain Lake PBS in Plattsburgh. Welcome. My name is Holly Heller Ross. While others were advocating for freedom by any means necessary, including violence, Martin Luther King Jr. used the power of words and acts of nonviolent resistance to achieve seemingly impossible goals. Rabbi David Kaminsky compared King to biblical prophets who called society to reckoning. In contemporary America, we tend not to use the word prophet. And yet I think that in naming Martin Luther King Jr. as prophet, we do no disservice to those who came before him. Today, more than ever, we are called to follow in his path that he laid out for us. We are called to make this country a more perfect union. We are called to engage in making this world a more equitable place. Plattsburgh Mayor Chris Rosenquist reminds us that King's legacy is one of service and social justice around issues like workers and voting rights and fair and equal housing. For me, it's not enough to just take a look at what Dr. King did in the very short time that he was here. It's very much also up to us to continue that fight, to continue that legacy as an inheritance. Adirondack Diversity Initiative Director Nicole Hilton Patterson spoke about King's belief in the power of redemptive love. King said, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world, for love is the only way. Speakers urged people to make this a day of service. Plattsburgh's celebration traditionally begins with a group cleaning the Trinity Church soup kitchen, followed by the Newman Center gathering. Audio is courtesy of Mountain Lake PBS. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2104. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.